HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coral Lee. Joining me today from Ignacio, Colorado and Hollyoak, Massachusetts, it's Carlos Baca and Naftali, respectively two chef educators from iCollective. The iCollective is a group of indigenous chefs, activists, herbalists, seed, and knowledge keepers. Indigenous communities have been wild foraging, cooking farm-to-table slash snout-to-tail, and manipulating closed-loop agricultural systems before it got trendy. So why don't we see indigenous joints popping up everywhere? Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. So your manifesto champions four principles, indigenous, inspired, innovative, and independent. How did the iCollective get started? Well, there's there's a lot lot behind that story. Um, The basics of it is that um, in recognizing that we didn't really, you know, there's only a handful of indigenous chefs that really... um, get airtime and uh, we had to try to figure out what kind of platform we could build um, using um, those things that we have available to us uh, as far as media and and media support yeah, kind so of create a, a platform for our younger generation of chefs and, and cooks and activists and whatnot to um be visible. Mm-hmm. You said only a few get airtime. Um, who are the people that get the airtime, and why? Why only them? <laughs> That's a tricky question. Would <laughs> um, say of the people that actually get uh, you know regular 
media attention. Obviously, Sean Sherman from the sous chef. Um, uh, say like Loretta Barry Odin, um, Naftali and myself, uh, Nephi Craig, Freddie Bitsui. You know, there, there's only a handful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, instead of getting like pigeonholed and letting people direct who gets attention, we're really trying to create this brand that holds all of those within it, right? So we're we're able to to speak and move as a unit. Hmm. And what are some challenges that are unique to the I Collective educators and chefs, let alone indigenous peoples in the food world? Hi, it's Nathalie here. Oh, thank you for Hi. having us. Um, I think the. Uh, just to follow up a little bit more on your last question, mm-hmm. uh, developing leadership from younger uh, younger generations was was and is one of the main priorities, mm-hmm. uh, especially uh, leadership and uh, from the young chefs that are in places where it's not uh, where not, they don't get a lot of visibility. So we have some perhaps some younger chefs that are still living in reservations, and uh, and we really want to push push uh, for them to get a little bit more airtime. Um, challenges like anything else starting trying to start an organization, have a collective uh, have a collective voice presents challenges, especially taking into consideration the for many generations we have been pinned uh, against each other, not only as indigenous peoples but also as people of color. Mm-hmm. We are we grew up in a world where we thought not to trust each other, not to work with one another. So I, th- I, I think that that's one of the greatest challenges. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think that maybe um, these younger chefs don't get airtime because they choose to kind of stay out of the limelight? Um, I, I would say personally, um, I mean, there are those that, that choose that. Um, But a lot of these, uh, if you're trying to gain support for work you're doing in your community, um, I think it, that it's a valuable, you know, asset to to be able to reach outside of your box. And so uh, that's what a lot of our our younger chefs are using the I Collective for is to gain traction and, and gain a voice for the work that they're doing in their own communities. Mm-hmm. And do you think that? that kind of lack of visibility is unique to indigenous chefs? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely in the shadows um, of, of the food world, I would say. And so it's definitely going to be, um, I mean, you start seeing it a lot more now, like we're getting a lot more visibility. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, and for myself, I'm okay. I'm, I'm notoriously standoffish with media <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, have turned down things that most, uh, chefs, uh, reach for in goals that they try to do, you know, in, in some of this content. And I, and I do that because it's, it's not about us. It's about this collective unity mm-hmm. in this, this group and, and raising up our communities. So 
Um, the media is not really important per se if if the dialogue isn't correct. And mm-hmm. so, you know, those are all things that we work with. Yeah, I think that um, differs wildly from the kind of white culture, white of the, you know, the white celebrity chef. Um, I work at a restaurant and this customer came in today and she was telling me how it's hard to decipher between hype food and what's actually good food because so many restaurants now kind of blow up their hype via social media and you go and it's there's no story behind the food or the food's not even that good and so I think (laughs) (laughs) it's really kind of refreshing to hear um, chefs that are trying to you know maybe sometimes choose uh, to be in the spotlight and sometimes not definitely Mm-hmm. I think that it's Neftali here again. I think that uh, um, definitely, especially the younger chefs are really media savvy. Mm. Really, really media savvy and very visible in our communities. Maybe the disconnection is that there's no uh, there's no media that aligns with uh, that aligns with our with the values, and maybe there's uh, the media is, is slow to catch up. With uh, with the values that a lot of these younger chefs and us are trying to are trying to talk about, um, so maybe that there's a disconnect there. Especially if you if we're talking about communities that have been historically disenfranchised and ignored for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's kind of like you're taking the the nobler path or doing the bigger thing because in this way you get to reconstruct or reappropriate the story and tell it in the way you would like it to be known. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is, we still haven't really gotten to um, the I Collective itself. What is kind of like a day in the life? Um, so one of you is based in Holyoke, Massachusetts, and the other is in Ignacio, Colorado. Do you, what... Do you interact daily? What is it like? Uh, there, there are so many people within the collective mm-hmm. that, um, you know, we have we have business threads and we have I collective threads and we have individual threads for uh, conversations regarding uh, events that we have planned in different parts of the country, and so there's a constant flow of information and uh, uh, on the business end and then there's the friendship end and the, you know, the jokes and the, <laughs> the playing around that we all do. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, definitely works towards a, a greater uh, sense of community and understanding because we do conversate daily. Mm-hmm. What are some recent events that or ones that you're working on now? Um, the, I'll, I'll, I'll drop the one that I'm working on currently, and then Neftali can run through some of the uh, East Coast stuff. Um, right now, uh, I'm working on, so my my brand, I guess you would say, is the Taste of Native Cuisine, which I founded uh, back in 2011, and I do uh, pre-colonial uh, pop-up dinners and educational work and uh, things like that. Um, Social justice, racial justice, food justice are all uh, within that envelope. And uh, I'm doing, uh, in partnership with uh, Growing Partners of the Southwest, 
uh, and a few other groups with the Navajo Nation um, and Southern Ute uh, that were doing a food justice symposium in late April um, to work in, in partnership with Somos Unidos and a bunch of different uh, perspectives. So we have an indigenous perspective, uh, immigrant perspective, uh, white perspective, and uh, African perspectives of uh, where we are with food system in general and racism in the food system. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be a three-day event um, that myself will be speaking at, uh, Rowan White from Sierra Seeds will be speaking at, um, and then we are working on an event with Sulaylip uh, uh, up in outside of the reservation outside of Seattle mm-hmm. uh, to be doing a week-long a series of events, working with their elders, um, doing some cooking within their communities, and also a pop-up in Seattle at uh, London Post. So uh, on my end, that's where we are over here in Neftali. Yeah, and it, Coral, thank you for uh, thank you for asking that because this actually this is right. Uh, I have uh, this is something that is super important. We are sort uh, sort of loosely calling the collective year of solidarity. And we are hoping to do many events throughout the year in solidarity with other movements and in solidarity with the, um, our indigenous brothers and sisters. And one event that is coming up, uh, that is coming up right uh, on your neck of the woods in New York City is the Coalition of Immokalic Workers is uh, observing a fast from March 11 to the 15th, ending with a, with a rally on the 15th. And this fast is uh, to bring attention to their, uh, to the struggle, uh, which has been going on for a few years and to call for, uh, to call for Wendy's, the fast food restaurant to, uh, to boycott Wendy's. Mm. And what, uh, what, uh, what the coalition of Mokalik workers are asking is uh, something really simple that I think that all of your, uh, all of your listeners can can support um, the freedom fast fast in New York City from March 11 to the 15 is to break the silence and, and to stop sexual abuse sexual violence in the fields. And uh, for uh, I'm just going to read something from from uh, their email today. For generations, farm worker women have endured sexual violence in the fields, but in 2011, farm worker women and men with the coalition of local workers launched the Fair Food Program in Florida. The program has finally put an end to sexual harassment and assault on tens of thousands of workers by harnessing the purchasing power of more than a dozen of the world's largest retail food companies, including uh, a lot of the major food brands, all except Wendy's. Hmm. Uh, so this is something that the collective is supporting, uh, is trying to support not only in social media, but hopefully some of our members will be able to, at least one of our members will be able to join um, to join them in New York City. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to backtrack a little, backtrack a little bit. You, um, Carlos, you mentioned that you host uh, these dinners um, where you feature uh, pre-colonial food, right? Um, and they uh, kind of stalked your Instagram. They look really fancy. Um, who are you cooking for, and how much does it cost to eat um, these dinners? <laughs> 
this is a conversation, and, and it's actually something that we um, have been confronted with mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to doing these type of dinners in that um, the demographic that I come from on a reservation can't afford $150 to come sit down and eat a course out meal, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the pictures that you see. But in getting confronted with those issues, um, we don't uh, really put forward that, say, like uh, the event that we had this this last fall uh, over Thanksgiving week in in Manhattan in Brooklyn, um, that that we start those things off with community service work. Um, that out of our own pockets, we fed the indigenous community at the American Indian House in New York. Um, you know, and so uh, we're we're feeding both aspects, and we're using the aspect of those fancy pop-up dinners to fund mm-hmm. um, our work within the community. And so it's it's really just a balancing act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've seen, I think I talked about this last week too, but um, Ugly De- Delicious on Netflix. Um, he, he talked with the chef from Noma in Copenhagen and how they did a pop-up in Tulum. And we're like, oh, we're going to feature the local ladies' tortillas and all that. But it just, it felt so wrong and it looked so wrong. Um, and I wonder if you felt similarly as the one cooking. <laughs> I have not seen it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what would be the what struck you wrong about it? Um, that they, I'm I don't know how much it costs, but I'm guessing upwards of a hundred dollars for a quartz out meal, um, and it'd be like a single charred Brussels sprout leaf over this local wood. Um, and none of the dinner guests were from Tulum. Um, they were all, I don't know, people from Copenhagen, people from America who had traveled, maybe saw it on social media, went to Tulum, and it was kind of like a, an experience, right, of this local environment. Mm-hmm. And sure, it, to some degree, it is educational and does open people's eyes to what's going on there, like another aspect of culture, but still it just felt dirty, felt wrong. Right. Uh, so, Neftali, yeah, we we have conversated about this before when it comes to Red Zeppi and Noma and mm-hmm. um, things like that, where uh, when they were in Mexico, we we're like, well, what are they doing for the community? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, who had access to that food and who gained any knowledge from that and who was taken from, you know, I mean, these are all things that uh, we have to take into consideration, and uh, you want to speak. That's that's a little more in Neftali's turf, being from Oaxaca. So, do you want to talk on that, Neft? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we we had a conversation online last year uh, about a cultural appropriation with a lot of people. A lot of people actually engage so many so many good terms, so many not so good terms. Um, I, as Carlos said, I'm from Oaxaca, and I've always been very outspoken on cultural appropriation, culinary appropriation of uh, Mexican food, specifically from indigenous communities in Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. Uh, I 
I, you know, knowing that that restaurant was going on, that a pop-up restaurant was going on in Tulum, definitely rubs me the, the wrong way when a Mexico has one of the largest indigenous populations, the Yucatan Peninsula has a lot of Mayan people. They have, not only they don't have access to their land, or to the ocean, mm-hmm. but uh, nonetheless, they don't have access to any of these uh, luxuries that a lot of people from outside have mm-hmm. and, and come and utilize. Uh, so I think that when it comes to values, not only the collective, but myself, um, we need to call it, you know, we need to, I need to call it what it is, and it's just another, at the continuation of colonialism, you uh, using indigenous cuisine to uh, to highlight and make money mm-hmm. and uh, serve people that can they can pay you know what was it like five hundred dollars to go have dinner mm-hmm. um, you know and uh, I also think when it comes to values for the collective this is some of the conversations we've been having there is no food sovereignty without actually addressing food access. And as Carlos was saying, uh, we, uh, we're trying to walk a fine line between doing some fancy dinner, but more importantly, actually, more importantly, providing food and being part of the communities that we go into or that we belong to. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you define what food sovereignty, um, or more specifically, uh, indigenous food sovereignty is and tribal food insecurity versus security? Yeah, I mean, you have to go right to the heart of it with that conversation and look at what just happened in South Africa. You know, I mean, what what is decolonization? It's about land. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a, an interesting conversation. You know, you get into indigenous food sovereignty, you have to talk about how many layers and how many centuries of warfare have been, you know, held against our, our food systems and our people. Mm-hmm. And the fact that any of our food waste still exists is a, is a testament to the resilience of indigenous people here. So um, food sovereignty in the broad scale is... Uh, I guess it's going to have to be a reflection of work that we're doing at home, right? The work that we're trying to do with uh, recreating our our traditional food systems that uh, to provide for our people. And I'm hoping that, I mean, you know, just like most educated people do, that our food system is broken in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and without an absolute change and... Uh, you know, we're not, it's just not going to, not going to work. You know, I, was, I remember what article it was that came out last month that I had shared with some friends and with the collective about, you know, that 30% of uh, farmers in the world feed 70% of the population, mm-hmm. where 70% of the uh the farmable land base is held by major corporations mm-hmm. who use the majority of the water, the majority of the chemicals, the majority of things, but they're only feeding 30% of the population. 
mm-hmm. you know, and like that is broken. <laughs> I mean, um, so when you talk about food sovereignty, it's about, you know, what we're trying to do in our communities um, to make ourselves self-sustaining and do it in our traditional ways um, and hoping that, you know, the visual and the action and, and the things that we're doing in those systems bleed into the broader scale. And so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not only uh, this very small percentage of people feeding a very large percentage of people, but also there's so much food waste, you know, in grocery stores or restaurants, so much food is going wasted while so many people are still going hungry. And this is a big question of, not one that I expect you to know the answer to, but how do you think we can go from just saying the system's broken to actually making steps to unbreak it? I, I, I can I can speak to that. Mm-hmm. So first of all, you know, I really like the food sovereignty definition by welfare culture uh, that goes along the lines of like that goes along these lines: the right of indigenous nations to define their own diets and shape food systems that are congruent with their spiritual and cultural values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that really translates for me is that every tribal community, everyone should have access to culturally appropriate food that is healthy and that is relevant to their culture and their traditional diet. Mm-hmm. Um, when, it comes to, when it comes to talking about uh, what are we doing uh, to, to change the system, Many of the members, uh, all of the members from, of the collective are doing work in their communities. As well, we are also, we also belong to different organizations that, uh, that push for, uh, for a better food system for everyone. I am heading to D.C. next week to, uh, to advocate for a better farm bill for everyone. Uh, not only for indigenous communities, but for everyone. I think the Farm Bill is one of the pieces of legislation that touches everyone, and uh, whether you like it or whether you like it or not. And there's a lot of programs that are in danger under this administration of uh, being cut. Uh, things that we things like SNAP, week, uh, mm-hmm. emergency food, school food, and those are. The, and I think that we, as uh, engaged citizens have a responsibility to push back and, and advocate for a better food system at all levels, mm-hmm. not only growing your own food, not only at the grassroots levels uh, in your community, but also we need, to, uh, we need to push at the national level, at the state level, for better policies for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually read, or a friend sent me this New York Times article that showed that um, you know, these great, quote-unquote, policies are put into place, but then there's still so many restrictions on what these mothers, these uh, lesser fortunate people can buy with their benefits. And so it's like catch-22 almost. Well, I think that we have to recognize and be realistic that a, the, a lot of the programs, a lot of the programs that are in place to to feed the, especially to to feed people that fall under the under the nutrition on the farm bill under the nutrition chapter were compromises mm-hmm. were compromises uh, for the new deal so it's not that the government really wanted to do this for the people those are political compromises that were put in place mm-hmm. to uh, to pass other other bills 
This is meant to be eaten. Um, we're talking about broken food systems, and we'll be right back after a short break. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. This is Meant to be Eaten. I'm your host, Coral Lee, and I'm speaking with two chefs from the Eye Collective. We were just talking about broken food systems um, kind of globally, and I wanted to ask you two, what does decolonizing a food system really look like? Well, I mean, for myself, it's Carlos. Um, I, I want to kind of tie that in with uh, a question that you and mm-hmm. I had spoken yeah, about, what is, you know, what is an indigenous foods activist? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's a terminology that, um, as from for myself, uh, I dropped the term chef, mm-hmm. and the reason I did that is because it's a Eurocentric mind frame mm-hmm. um, in in the entirety of the kitchen environment. Right? It's about uh, being the head of the the organization and ruling and dictating mm-hmm. and um, it, it's a very uh, toxic environment as you can see by what's happening uh, in the restaurant world right now and mm-hmm. the shakeups that are going on um, and you know controlling all of the the produce and you know and all these things whereas the work that I do um, is the exact opposite of that um, I'm not in the kitchen anymore, for one. Hmm. Uh, very rarely am I. But uh, when I'm out harvesting and I'm out uh, doing these things or when I'm growing foods or any of these things, uh, the environment is my teacher. Uh, the environment is my kitchen. My environment is uh, dictates to me. I don't get to dictate to it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm not a chef. I'm an indigenous foods activist. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about decolonizing um, systems, you have to start with self. Right? You, have to, you have to shed those things um, because I can't move forward in my work if I'm holding on to the ideals of what has suppressed me for all this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so to decolonize the food system, what do we have to do? Right, we have to quit looking at it as uh, we hold dominion over things. Right, mm-hmm. you have like that 
that uh, Christian ideal, that manifest destiny ideal that says to you that, oh, we have to hold dominion and we are the controllers of everything. And it's the exact opposite of indigenous thought process, right? Uh, I think uh, I just was reading uh, Gregory Cajete's Native Science book, and he's he's describing something that I've never really been able to put into words, but it's just real simple between the spatial and linear thought processes uh, that differentiate an indigenous mind and a Western mind. That to get from point A to point B in, in the linear Western mind frame is to do it as quickly and most efficiently as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas for us, from, to get from A to B is possible, but it's not necessarily going to happen, but it could after I go doing all these other things. And then I might look back and not even get there and think, oh, why did I ever want to do that? Hmm. Right? Like We just have such different ideals. Mm-hmm. And so we know that nothing is ever stationary, right? Some things are only true while they are. And so to decolonize a food system, you have to really look into that concept and know, like, um, we're not the boss. Like, you, by thinking that we're the boss of what's going on, we have a whole nation of GMOs and, and chemicals that have to be put on them so they can even activate to grow, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. so we we need to drop those illusions and hold our food system and our uh, food providers accountable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, that I, I kind of posited at the beginning of the episode. Why aren't we seeing a ton of, you know, indigenous fancy or hip restaurants around? And it could just be a different value system. <laughs> right. Um, you want to touch on that, Neff? I think that there's a, there's a value system in which use uh, uh, something that Carlos mentioned resonates with me of actually being of service to the community, mm-hmm. and from that perspective, we need to uh, as cooks as community members, we need to make sure that our people have access to food first, and that we are uh, being of service to the community before uh, before we can worry about. Uh, sharing with, with everyone else, mm-hmm. so maybe that that's one part. But the other part is also access, economic justice. Uh, if we don't, if we don't have, have access to land, which is the basis of wealth in this country, we really are not in a position in which we can, uh, in which we have a mass capital to open restaurants. Uh, so I think that there's plenty of indigenous people working in the system. The fact is there's no, there's no indigenous, uh, indigenous cooks or indigenous chefs uh, running the, their own restaurants. It's really a question of economic justice, mm-hmm. not a question of uh, whether people would love the opportunity to give it a try or not. Mm-hmm. So then what do you kind of make of this trendy thing to now be an urban forager or to cook farm to table, um, which seems to be really hip. Like I saw this ad for this really fancy mushroom knife, which does look so excessive and not at all. It kind of like completely misses the point. Um, How do you feel about all this? 
Oh, you know, I mean, I it, that's what I do, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, for a living um, is is hang out in the woods and and collect foods and um, I, and I and I've not, I have only recently come to really contemplate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sitting at my grandmother's house last, was probably about three weeks ago. And we were discussing about what I do, mm-hmm. and they're talking to me about uh, how did I end up there. And I said, "Well, you know, like the, my food memories, like I, my grandmother giving us a bag and telling us to go collect purslane, or uh, harvesting out of the garden, or being up in the mountains foraging with my grandfather, and, and these things, and." I said, you know, I, I never realized that other people didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Like, I never, it wasn't until I was in the food industry that I realized that that wasn't a thing. And so, uh, what my aunt said to me was, well, I guess we take these things for granted. And that made me contemplate, is it a trend right now? Or are people stopping to take things for granted? Like, are people finally starting to come back to the realization that we were provided for before modern agricultural practices, mm-hmm. you know, or, uh, I mean, of course there's always people profiteering and, you know, I mean, this, we're in the, the uber neoliberal <laughs> state of, of the world right now. And I, so, I mean, there's always going to be people that, um, come at it from that, that perspective. Um, but you know, for my, my own self, I look at, I look at it like, oh, well, it's about time. Hmm. Now let's make sure that we keep it sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dan Barber came out with this new line of seeds. Um, and when it was announced on the internet, they looked like an Apple product and the way that people were holding these seeds and just like the, just all the fame around it, it felt like another electronic or like another commodity. And, how do you, do you use this kind of newfound awareness to your advantage as an educator? Are you like, finally, yes, welcome, let's learn about this, or does it kind of, is it off-putting? I mean, anything from the commodification standpoint, mm-hmm. like when we're just trying to create food bases and, and food systems to feed our people, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, all this other stuff, like being here with you today and doing pop-up dinners in major cities and being in this magazine and that magazine and this video and, you know, those are are kind of all obsolete Mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, you know? And so, um, the commodification aspect, uh, it's almost, it's peripheral to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't engage in it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I mean, I don't sit in front of television. I don't, you know, I mean, I don't, those aren't things I do. So I have to, uh, I guess just look at it from, uh, from my own individual perspective and in how I live and how I walk daily mm-hmm. and know that I don't partake in that and that the systems that we're trying to create uh, within 
our communities and uh, as the I collective base uh, that we don't commodify ourselves and that we don't sell ourselves um, in that manner. So I'm, I don't know how else to answer that one. Well, your experience um, going out to gather your food um, is kind of a special and a unique one. You know, there are a lot of indigenous indigenous people that have to rely on foods distributed from government programs. And and it's like, I've read a lot of Sherman Alexie's books and like that's what I have come to associate with um, indigenous or Indian quote unquote food. And so can you talk about this like complicated relationship with fry bread? <laughs> I'm gonna let you start that one off, Neff. <laughs> well, I well, I was hoping that you would take that one on, but uh, <laughs> uh, I will. I will. <laughs> see, my uh, my position, my position on uh, on comfort food, which is really what uh, what fry bread is. Is fry bread is comfort food, and comfort food, whether it's good for us or not. Or not has shaped our, our food memories and our visceral memories based mm-hmm. on what we had access to throughout generations. If I had access, if I, I, I grew up in Oaxaca in, uh, with my grandma, and if I had access to tortillas, fried in lard, if I had access to whatever food I would have access to based on our, on our economic circumstances, that's food that I'm gonna gravitate to, towards because that's those are those are the foods that created my my memory. Mm-hmm. So my position on fried bread or no fried bread, uh, greasy foods or not greasy foods, has always has evolved throughout the years to a more uh, to a, towards a more self compassionate compassionate understanding mm-hmm. of food and memories and visceralities, um, in the sense that. The, uh, who am I to judge who is what when our peoples don't have access to good food? Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, I think uh, I think uh, we have to. I have to be very careful on how I have an opinion about uh, about food when it comes to food that is pushed down proactively in our communities. Let's say uh, soda or other foods are not very healthy. I have a responsibility Oh no, I think you cut out. Okay. Um, Carlos, do you want to add to this? Uh, yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a really interesting conversation. Yeah, he was getting, <laughs> he was getting to like it's the meat good. of it. I was so excited. Um, say for myself, mm-hmm. I, I might eat it a few times a year, um, and I don't make it and I won't provide it to people mm-hmm. because I feel like it's my responsibility, uh, not to contribute to bad health mm-hmm. within my community. Um, but as Naftali was saying, and things that we have to be really careful about, food shaming, you know, and, mm-hmm. and how that 
how that affects people that don't have access to or the knowledge of ways to provide for themselves. Um, a little historical background of, of breads in the Americas, um, you know, in, in the Southwest, I mean, fry bread is generally associated with the Navajo Nation. And um, I do a lot of food studies, and I have uh, ethnobotanical studies from the early 1800s and congressional papers about food and, uh, you know, all these things. And I've come across numerous times um, the precursor to the modern fry bread. Hmm. Um, and that is with, uh, you know, nut flowers like acorns and uh, sunflower seeds and things like that, even mesquite, um, things like colt's foot, which is a, an herb that kind of grows on the, the banks of um, ditches and things. And... Uh, uh, burned down into an ash and used as a leavener. And, and then whole berries and things like this formed into a, a, a bread substance. And in some instances, uh, you know, cooked straight into the coals. In other instances, um, cooked in fat. Hmm. Right? So like there, it, it wasn't like there wasn't something similar to it previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and in discussions that we have, uh, quite often, because fry bread is a constant topic, uh, this would have been a good one for Brian Brian Yazi to be on here for. <laughs> he's he's always in this conversation. Um, is that unless we, as uh, Indigenous cooks and chefs and activists and and things, are not uh, providing an option that's mm-hmm. better and available? We don't. We can't judge it, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, those are the things that we're currently working on. Is as uh, our events and our as we're cooking for our people is to provide alternative opera, you know, an alternative thoughts and alternative tastes mm-hmm. um, that are accessible. So that's how I that's how I deal with the fry bread issue. <laughs> I think Neftali's back. Um, did you want to add something? Uh, to what you were saying about memory and kind of this tiptoe dance around food shaming. Yeah, I think the, uh, Carlos covered some of the rest, but uh, I, uh, I guess the last thing that I would like to say is that we have the responsibility to uh, of self-passion, not only towards ourselves, but towards the community. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we also have the responsibility to speak up against corporations and against uh, Basically, against a, a system that has taken advantage of the, of the, of people's needs. Mm-hmm. This is meant to be eaten. I've been speaking with two indigenous food activists from I Collective. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.